The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Richard Lee. Now, we don't know where in the world you might be listening in from, and this perhaps isn't news for you, but where we are in North London, the sun is out. And that is reason enough for us to want to celebrate with a podcast about books that encourage us to look anew at nature. We're going to discover how you can find food growing wild, even in the city, as Richard tries to collect his own dinner with professional forager John Wright. With more or less success. (laughs) Just over there, there's a, uh, I think that's a broom tree, a broom shrub. It's another ten yards on. Yeah, you're okay. You're not tiring yourself out, are you? <laughs> I think I'll just about make it. But first, Andrea Wolfe. You may recall Claire was in Cartagena at a branch of the Hay Literary Festival some weeks ago. And while she was there, she came across Wolfe talking about her new book, The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt. So first, Claire, Wolfe will be appearing at festivals across the UK all summer. Why was it important to you to interview her on a bench in the centre of Cartagena? <laughs> Well, actually, the real story is actually weirder than that, which is that I was sent this fabulous book. It's a a huge, great graphic biography of Alexander von Humboldt. And I was sent it at Christmas and I I leafed through it and I saw it was set in South America, Latin America. So I took it with me in my suitcase, partly because they'd put out an appeal for books for local school kids. And I thought, oh, you know, here's this lovely book. Perhaps I could pass it on to local school kids and also it gives me something lovely to read while I'm there and when I got there I found not only was Andrea there but the book wasn't (laughs) really because (laughs) because it 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 was it had been published to that date to date in such a minute number of copies that actually what I was holding was pretty much gold so Mm. everybody in the festival wanted it so I clung on to it and brought it back in my suitcase and I thought it was too good an opportunity to miss to actually meet Andrea in Cartagena because there is a scene in this book which involves von Humboldt going there. And her book, The Invention of Nature, won her the Welcome Prize a few years back and that was also about von Humboldt. So why did she sort of decide that she needed to come back and sort of revisit him? Well, this this is a very different sort of thing. I and mean, that, that was a serious biography. And this is a really magical opening him up to a different generation, but also opening him up to different sorts of readers. He's a fascinating figure. Um, he was a, a Prussian aristocrat who decided to go off and become an explorer. And in doing so, he was the first person to realise that actually everything was joined up in nature. So he, w- he was looking at geology, at botany, at climatology, at astrology. And through his travels, he did things like when he went up the Andes, he realised that the ecosystems in the Andes were similar to ecosystems in Switzerland. Hmm. And and what this book does is it she's working with a very brilliant young designer and they incorporate... He also was a, a, an incredibly prolific letter writer. There are something like 50,000 letters he wrote and he then also obviously received letters in return. And so she's, she's used sort of archival materials and lots of period illustrations and drawn them into this book. So it actually gives you the texture of the sort of um, the way that they were thinking and the way that they were representing nature as they go, as, the, as you read through the book. So it is a, a brilliant way of representing exploration and discovery in a period that is now quite distant to us. But it's a very modern way of thinking about the natural world. 
Now yeah. that it's all, all interconnected, as we're discovering well, now, to our cost. Now we know that, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, that this was not known at that time. And he was actually, by his contemporaries, described at the time as the most famous person after Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, I mean, he really was really famous. And he, he was um, really influential on Darwin. He was very influential on Wordsworth and Coleridge, on the whole, the whole romantic movement. Um, and at the moment, one of the fascinating things is this book has been top of the German charts because he's a massive hero to the Germans. But as Andrea says, he's not really very well known here, not as well known as Darwin. He's not as well known as he should be. So she's part of her mission, although I think she's probably a bit tiring of this mission now, (laughs) is to to actually say, look, guys, there's this really, really important figure. Look what he did. And this is where the idea of joined up thinking goes. It's where the whole idea of climate, of catastrophe, climatic catastrophe goes back to as well. And of course, Cartagena is full of nature, <laughs> even in the middle of, of the town. And um, what you can hear in the background are grackles. As I discovered, they're big blackbirds, a bit like a cross between a blackbird and a crow or a magpie without the white bits. And I asked her to describe in her own terms how the adventures differed from the invention of nature. Well, it's, it's kind of a graphic novel, although novel implies kind of fiction. So this is very much a graphic non-fiction book I suppose so it's a book where we try to show Humboldt's artistic side so Humboldt was a was an explorer he was the most famous scientist of his age but he was also very artistic and and the reason why I wanted to do a book showing his artistic side is when I saw his actual manuscripts while I was doing the research for the invention of nature I saw his diaries, uh, 4,000 pages kind of tightly written in his quite indecipherable handwriting, but also hundreds and hundreds of drawings of monkeys and fish from the Orinoco and profiles of volcanoes and mine shafts and calculations and maps of rivers. And it's it was so visual and so extraordinary. And it was such a... How shall I explain? So he, he writes... And he writes on little bits of paper and then he, he puts them on top of each other. So he creates these multi-layered collages of thoughts. So we wanted to do, I wanted to do a book with someone else because I'm not very artistic, which shows this. So I found this extraordinary illustrator, Lilia Melcher, uh, who was based in New York when I met her, 23 years straight out of art school. And we sat together and created a book that... So we wanted to create something that used a lot of his original materials, his notes, his diaries, but also his plant material, his, his dried um, herbarium specimen. So basically, just going right back to the beginning, just for people who don't know the story of Alexander von Humboldt, he, he was a Prussian, he did everything, polymath, wasn't he? But he, who set off for, for South America in 1799, having got permission from the King of Spain, nobody was allowed to go there, wasn't Spanish. Yeah, it was then. very unusual that he got the permission to do this. So he went on this five-year exploration of South America, and what's so important about him is he returned from this exploration with a completely new view of nature, a new concept of nature where he describes nature as a living organism, as a interconnected whole where everything belonged together from the smallest insect to the tallest trees and volcanoes. So this new book, The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt, tells the story of those five years. Rather than The Adventure of Nature, I tell the story of Humboldt's whole life. So this is concentrating just on his adventures, really. So this page here is from his journey along the Orinoco. 
and it's got great big illustrations of fishes. Are those his fishes? Yes. Fishes so, with whiskers. And so, the, so the entire river is made out of his diary pages, his writing, but also the fish they caught and dissected. We have drone footage of the Amazon, so like collage photographs of treetops. Uh, we have Lillian's drawings of the boat capsizing in the Orinoco. So they almost drown here in this scene. And then, and this is my favorite bit really, is when I read his diaries, there's a page which has big dark watermarks on them. And he describes in a note in his diaries, these are the watermarks um, that happened when my diary um, got wet, when we almost drowned in the Orinoco. And Lillian has him jumping into the Orinoco through his watermarks. So he's rescuing his diary on the actual page of his diary through the watermark. And then there's another page where he travels with a French botanist and there's a, a, a time when they, they're travelling across the Caribbean Sea and, and all his work gets mouldy. And you've managed to recreate the mould. <laughs> so so the, Lillian and I were really perfect match I think we're both incredibly nerdy about historical facts so everything we wanted everything to be as authentic as possible so what she suggested and what she did is she she wanted to show these moldy pages because it was very hot and humid so Bonplan the the botanist he was constantly struggling to dry his plants she said I need to have some plants to make the moldy but she lived in New York and this was the middle of winter so where to get tropical plants in the middle of winter in New York so I know some people from the New York Botanical Garden who very kindly gave us some cuttings from their South American collection which Lillian then sprinkled with milk and tea and coffee all in a very unscientific way and then shoved them in her garden shed for a few weeks and then voila she creates some mold and then scans it in which is now in our book here so, so it's, it was all very much it's very tactile and visceral almost, I think. It's, and I thought when I did The Invention of Nature, because I'd done so much research that I'm completely, you know, I've done all the research, there's nothing more to do. But then Lillian suddenly wanted to know, you know, how, how was he holding his scientific instruments? Because in The Invention of Nature, I could say like, oh, he took his barometer, went up the mountain and measured the height of the mountain, and she, but she needed to draw it. So I know someone who is an expert in historical scientific instruments, so he sent us photos step by step using a, a dip needle, a barometer, so that she could draw it. And he, it meant that they basically had to transport this barometer horizontally, horizontally. across mountains. You're yes. talking about carrying a glass object across yes. mountains without, without actually losing its horizontality. And the amazing thing about this story is that he had a servant whose main job was actually to carry the barometer because it was the most important scientific instrument for the whole expedition. So you have pictures of them going across a going across a mountain with this huge great tube held sideways rather than up and down. No, no slinging it easily across his shoulders. No. There's also another lovely one of the movement of the Southern Cross during the time that he made one particular journey. Tell us about that. So he travels from on this expedition. At some stage, he travels from Ecuador to Acapulco, Mexico, and he describes um, his sadness of seeing the star constellation of the Southern Cross slowly dipping towards the horizon the more north he goes kind of it slowly disappears and in order for Lillian to draw this we wanted to make sure that she draws the constellation correctly so I'd written a book about astronomy it's kind of called Chasing Venus a few years ago so I knew an astronomer so we asked him and he sent us these drawings where 
of the constellation, how it changed exactly in that year, in 1803, along the route that Humboldt was taking. So these, these are kind of little things which probably no one will notice, but it was very satisfying. So, so, what, you've got, so what you've got is a picture of a boat going across a page, and then you've got three, the constellation in three different places. Sinking slowly. Sinking towards. slowly during their voyage. So what, I, what I'm absolutely fascinated about with this book is this huge very scientifically correct subtext that's going on if you care to know about it it's got three dimensions that you don't necessarily see as a casual reader which is exactly what Humboldt did with his books and I think this is why we started um, thinking along these lines so Humboldt is a scientist who on the one hand schleps 42 scientific instruments across Latin America but at the same time he says we have to use our imagination to understand nature so he writes these books which, for the general audience, which are quite poetic. I mean, there's no other scientist at that time who would write like this. But at the same time, he has these scientific endnotes, which if you so choose to, if you are so inclined to, you will get the latest scientific knowledge in those endnotes. But you don't have to read them. You can just go along with a more poetic landscape description and in a way that's what we are trying to do here so on the one hand you can just read this as a great adventure story of Humboldt traveling through South America but you do it along his manuscript so you can dip kind of much deeper if you want to and we decided to do one thing where we have him walking through his own manuscripts and through his own engraving so there's there's another page which is one of my favorite pages which is an engraving of the profile of the mountains from Acapulco to Mexico City and he describes how their, their collections by now have uh, increased so much that they need 21 mules to carry them from from the boat to Mexico City so we have him and his little small team walking along his own drawing with the 21 mules so it's, it was just a, it was just great fun to kind of put him into his own drawings kind of climbing up mountains he climbed but it's these are his drawings it takes a certain sort of obsessiveness to do that i think so why are we interested in humboldt why should we read about humboldt today well i think he's still incredibly important uh, he he gave us a concept of nature that still very much shapes our thinking today he is he was so such a polymath and so interdisciplinary that he he brought together the arts and the sciences for example in a way that I think is very very important today so we have look at the political debates around kind of the environment these are debates where we are kind of facing numbers statistics careful legal wording this and this is going to happen if this and this increases and it's quite it, nothing of that speaks to your heart or to your soul and I'm really missing this admission that we might have to also talk about the wonder of nature, our love to nature, and that's something where, which Humboldt does. So on the one hand, he's this obsessive scientist who measures all the time, but he's also completely unafraid of talking about the poetry of nature. And I think that's something that's absolutely missing in today's debates on climate change. So in that respect, I think he's very important. He also actually was the person who formulated the thinking about nature actually being in the perpetual battle with itself, wasn't it? Rather, he said he disagreed with Newton. Yes. So he, I mean, in that, and in that respect, he's very important for Charles Darwin and Darwin's kind of evolutionary theory. But I think what's very important about Humboldt today is that he talks about that humankind can destroy nature. So by seeing nature as a living organism, he also realizes that we have an impact on of nature. And he talks about harmful human-induced climate change 
in 1800. Such as, such as indigo being very damaging to the environment, intensive indigo farming. Well, who would have thought that in the early 19th century that would have been yes. on people's minds? So he, I mean, he, I mean as he travels through South America, he knows again and again and again for example, how pearl fishing has completely destroyed the oyster stocks. In Mexico City, he talks about the local irrigation system that, that has left the surrounding valleys completely barren. And he says humankind is raping nature. So he's really not holding back at all. There's a, there's a moment in his diary in 1801 where he talks about a possible future where we might travel to distant planets. And then he says, if we do that, we will take our lethal mixture of greed and arrogance and violence with us and we will leave these planets as barren as we've done already with Earth. So coming back to where we started, we're doing this interview in Cartagena and there is another reason for it, which is that your work is huge in South America, isn't it? Because of him being here and it's where he is really well known is in Germany and where he came from and here, which is where he did most of his work. When I started working on Humboldt, people would just go to me like, who is he? I've never heard of him. So he's almost forgotten in the English-speaking world. He's not forgotten at all in South America. In Latin America, he is a, he's a huge hero. Almost every school child. Now, there are like lots of lots of schools here called the Humboldt schools. There are monuments, there are mountains named after him because of his friendship with Simon Bolivar. And because he traveled through South America, and he really put this continent on the map in a way. So I've been first coming to South America for the research of this, of the invention of nature, and then became quite addicted following Humboldt's footsteps, because it's a beautiful, beautiful continent. So I take any opportunity at the moment, any literary festival, to come to South America, because I don't know how other writers do it, but I need to see the landscapes of the people I write about. Otherwise, it just doesn't make sense. So I needed to go to the Orinoco, I needed to go to the Andes, I needed to see these places that were so important for Humboldt's vision of nature, for Humboldt's concept of nature. So we're, we're sitting here in this great big public square, which is not actually, it's called a park, but it's actually paved. And there's a dome of the cathedral in front of us, and there's, there's sort of various bits of traffic, and lots and lots of birds, which I have discovered have been called grackles, who he, <laughs> he undoubtedly, which he undoubtedly would have seen and heard. And he would recognise the trees around us, would he? Yes, I mean he was uh, he was a he was a very good botanist. He, although he had Bonpland as a botanist with him, Humboldt was also very good with botany. But he kind of gave the botany to Bonpland, and he did everything else basically. But he was I mean they were collecting. They came back with sixty thousand dried plant specimens, six thousand species, of which more than half were new to European botanists. So uh, huge numbers. And one, just one last thing, which is I love the eel experiment. And this is, it's, an, it's something that they did that has, uh, was only actually finally proved to actually be true and not fantasy in 2016 or something. Tell us about so, the eel. So when uh, Humboldt travels through Venezuela, through the Llanos, the great plains of um, Venezuela, he hears that there are electric eels, you know, very strange fish, about five foot long and they can discharge electric shocks of around 600 volt and he was very very keen to dissect one but of course you can't just catch it because then you would be dead immediately but the locals had an idea they lived in the bottom of shallow ponds so the locals drove 
a herd of 30 wild horses into the pond and the hoofs of the horses churned up the mud and then the eels, the electric eels were kind of coming out. It was a pretty gruesome spectacle because you have the eels kind of thrashing against the belly of the, of the, of the horses and eventually they discharge their electricity and become very weak so then you can catch them and you can kind of dissect them. And Humboldt describes this in one of his books and until 2016 most people said that he just completely made the story up that the eels would attack a horse and then in 2016 a scientist in Nashville kind of proved that he was right so we have in the graphic novel we have we kind of show this but we also have the original the headlines from the 2016 story in there so we almost bring this story to an end um, but told through Humboldt's story. So the, the lovely thing about that is this book contains stuff that didn't exist I mean proper scientific evidence that didn't exist at the time that you wrote the invention of nature which was the source material for this book there's something really lovely about that so so your work on Humboldt is, is continuing evolution. Yes, well, what happened actually was that while I was writing The Invention of Nature, or when I was coming towards the end of writing The Invention of Nature, his diaries, which had been in private hands, were bought in Germany by, by an archive in, in Berlin. It was too late to use that in The Invention of Nature, which wasn't a problem in terms of content because we had transcriptions of the diaries, but it's, it was actually seeing them that made me think, I need to, I need to do... A little bit more here and it was it was never going to be something that could be in the invention of nature because that's on an illustrated book it was so much fun looking at him again through a kind of visual lens I think and it's something that also came through I did I did so many talks about the invention of nature and I realized that one of the things that people love about Humboldt is that he so easily weaves together the arts and the sciences because we tend to draw such a sharp line between the objective and the subjective and he so easily kind of puts it together. So in a way, this book was a, it's kind of, it was almost like a homage to Humboldt and it's his 250th birthday this year. So it kind of felt like a fitting, fitting last book about Humboldt and then I will move on to something else. That was Andrea Wolf there speaking in Cartagena. Non-fiction graphic novels, even though you might think that novel and non-fiction might contradict each other, it's not really a new thing, is it? No, not at all, but I think that's kind of part of the source of the confusion, but some people don't expect to find non-fiction in a kind of graphical form. And I think the graphic novel is called a graphic novel to distinguish it from a short comic, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a bigger thing. But what do you call something that's non-fiction but is still graphic? I mean, you know, you couldn't call it a graphic biography, could you? Otherwise... No, it sounds very rude. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, you know, back in 2012, which is quite recent history in terms of the graphic biography, if we may call it. Um, <laughs> Brian and Mary Tolbert won the Costa Biography Prize with Daughter of Her Father's Eyes, which combined a biography of Lucia Joyce, who's James Joyce's daughter, with an autobiography of Mary Tolbert, who's the daughter of a great Joyce scholar. So, you know, it's really, it's really not a new thing. But I do think that there is something going on about the reclamation of images for adults and I know there's always been a comic culture very sort of cult comic culture but the thing about a very serious book that can also be 
very beautiful mm. and it's the intertextuality to use the posh word for it between pictures and text it's sort of having a bit of a renaissance and i think you see that in this book very very high production standards as well so it ties in as well with the renaissance of the idea of the beautiful book that cannot be replicated online and also like geek culture as well is having is really headed into the mainstream at, at the moment as we've seen with loads of things including everything that's in pop culture at the moment that seems to be science fiction and fantasy based uh, but also comics as well have sort of had a little bit of a, an upswing yeah so, so I suppose it's tropes that are changing from sort of minority things or geek culture as you say into the mainstream is embracing new ways of telling stories mm. yeah, it's just the rise and the rise of the visual isn't it we're all watching telly we're all on our smartphones why not have books with pictures yeah in yeah and that's that's a really good point actually because because we all think of everything as going moving inexorably towards television the moving image but actually books are reclaiming and in doing so sort of actually regenerating themselves saying hey look at us guys there are things we can do that the moving image can't do well if the sound of grackles cawing didn't make you want to go outside straight away then john wright will we'll go foraging in nature's wild harvests after this today in focus is a new guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. It's not the first thing I'd think of doing while walking around London, but foraging is a thing, inverted commas, and a growing trend. Uh, John Wright has been doing this for years and has published The Forager's Calendar, a book describing the hows, whys, and crucially, the whens for foraging. So Richard, what exactly is foraging? Uh, well, it's looking for food in the wild, isn't it? Uh, but crucially, it's kind of different way of looking at the natural world, uh, looking at it with something of a, an acquisitive eye. I mean, it's something that's always been part of rural life, particularly on the continent. And it's also a way of returning to a sort of older mode of existence. I mean, I think people always used to find food in the hedgerows and bushes. You know, it's go almost going back beyond a, a world of ready meals and supermarkets and even beyond a world of farming and industry. Mm. It's a kind of a, it's a natural way of being. But in the cities, it's quite interesting. I've got a problem with wild onions in my garden. Mm. And I sometimes think they're foraging me rather than I'm foraging <laughs> them. They're literally growing up between my flagstones and, and <laughs> the, the advance of the wild onions. And <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, even in the city, with all our concrete and flagstones and everything, we're still part of the natural world. So what was it like, Richard? What was your afternoon with John like? Was it how you expected? Sort of yes and sort of no. I mean, it's kind of foraging, as I say, it's a very natural thing to do. I remember as a kid returning from a country walk with blackberries in pots or whatever we had to hand or um, going out and looking for other things in the hedgerows, uh, but was very surprised by what happened with John because I was surprised at how little actual walking took place. <laughs> I mean, we almost, uh, we would stop every few steps and he'd say, oh, there's something interesting. Oh, that, that's quite, uh, we could have a bit of that. We'd try that. And we, I mean, when we met at the Hackney Marshes Sports Centre, in East London, we almost didn't get as far as getting out the car park because he'd spotted something straight away. I mean, the weather was a little greyer on that day, a, a breeze from the north with the occasional shower of rain. So I started by asking for a little reassurance. So, John, are you confident we're going to find something delicious? I'm absolutely positive we can. I'm, I'm not sure we're going to have enough to uh, feed ourselves supper tonight. <laughs> to, uh, to, we've got some interesting tastes, some interesting flavours and some pretty plants. 
we're here in, in spring despite the grey weather but what kind of thing do you think we're on the lookout here? Well, uh, I mean, spring is the time when things are very green, um, and that's, so it's a salad, salad days, salad days, I suppose you could say, uh, for something more substantial. You really need the autumn where you get the mushrooms and the nuts and the berries. Uh, but I tell you what, you do get now is that some really nice flowers and. Uh, Actually, there's something really rather good just where we're standing. You, you, you didn't think there was anything here, did you? But there's a, <laughs> we're standing under really a rather splendid uh, tree. It's a large shrub. And it's a glorious, wonderful elder, the elderflower. The elderflower's out already? It is. I usually wait until uh, the 1st of June. I think of it uh, as, as a summer plant. And, and, and for years it was coming out uh, uh, in, in 1st of June. It's the first chance to get, get uh, a sniff of it. But the last couple of years it's been coming out in May and even in April. But, of course, it's, it's nice and warm here in the Hackney Marshes. Well, not today it isn't, but uh, <laughs> usually it is. So uh, that's brought, that brings things forward. So, should we harvest some of this elderflower, or should we um, go straight on? I think uh, I think we should at least have a sniff. I'm just going to grab one off of here. I can break it off between two leaves, and uh, there we go. Uh, this is a, it's actually my first first sniff of the year of elderflower. Oh, it's, uh, it's, it's absolutely glorious. Um, indescribable. If you haven't smelt it, uh, you really should, um, but I can't describe it to you. It's, uh, it's rather a fruity smell. You can almost feel the berries on the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, unfortunately, you can't, uh, you can't pick flowers and berries. So ra- rather a heady, fruity smell. Useful, of course, in, in cordial. It makes the most wonderful cordial, which is ridiculously expensive in the shop. You make it for next to nothing yourself. But we're talking shopping bags full rather than handfuls. Yeah, I mean, I think a shopping, a shopping bag full of uh, elderflowers would, be, would make, you, make you half a dozen bottles of, uh, of cordial. Yeah, that'll, that'll work. Fantastic. So what, where to next? We don't have to go very far. Um, the smell of these elderflowers has been almost overwhelmed by another plant. Fortunately, not much you can get from it, but uh, it's, it's a lovely plant, another tree, uh, a common hedgerow tree, and found all sorts of places. Let's go to wander over here. Oh, 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 we're actually surrounded by stuff. Um, I mean, uh, I, I've never been here before, and we've, we've just stepped in here, and uh, I'm... I'm we're not. We have. We walked about ten yards, I suppose, and it's fifteen paces. Fifteen. Okay. <laughs> oh, you counting? Um, yeah. There's, there's, there's a plant here. Um, um, well, this, this is a, a tree. It's all trees at the moment, uh, but this is actually a, a big tree. This is a lime. I think it's a small leaf lime. Uh, I think you ought to grab some of that. I'll give you a, a little bit and, uh, and 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 have a chew. Have a munch. Yeah. Okay. Very green. It's a green flavour, yeah. Mm. Uh, it doesn't taste very much. It doesn't even taste particularly nice. It is rather neutral. There is a fundamental rule in, um, in foraging, and indeed uh, just being human. Food doesn't have to taste nice. <laughs> you just have to be nutritious. <laughs> in fact, uh, the definition of food is any, anything, any, any plant material, plant, or any organic material, that it doesn't actually kill you so uh, that's, that's a few um so that's the level we're at here with the lime tree uh, a bit but it's you know a few in the salad and uh, i mean what better to uh, improve your hedge cred than serving a few lime leaves uh, you know this is this is nothing to do with uh, oranges and lemons and limes this is the lime tree linden tree yeah uh, yeah you serve some of that so i've scattered it with some uh, some local lime leaves you know it, it's uh, it just 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 uh, showing i'm terrible after showing off and doing silly things like that obviously I, we we 
walked past something, I nearly jumped and grabbed you to look at that. But let's go back. Let's and look go back. At the other thing. What have we got here? On the ground this time? Yeah, this is on the ground. Um, this is rather a busy corner of Hackney Marshes. Um, not the sort of place I would want to forage anything on the ground. There are uh, sort of canines around a little bit. And also it's a, it's a little patch, or I suppose about, uh, about five foot square here of, uh, of this plant. Uh, it's called uh, Fat Hen and it is uh, a plant uh, which is um, which is famous for growing in nitrogen-rich areas. I, I think you can see the connection I have with nitrogen-rich areas and dogs. Yeah, spell it out for us. Yeah, I think uh, something. <laughs> it may not have happened. It just uh, it just grows on bare ground. But um, I wouldn't really want to pick it. You have to you have to be a little bit sensible about these things. And what's the sort of legal situation? Is it is it all right to just pick a, a bit of chickweed or some fat hen that you see when you're out on a walk? Uh, yes, yes. It, we are we are lucky. Only just, but we are lucky in the fact that the, uh, the there is a long-standing right to forage. And this has been enshrined in the 1968 Theft Act, and it says, um, he who picks fruit, flower, fungi, or foliage. The four Fs. The four Fs. <laughs> from, from any land, provided it is growing wild and is for personal use, does not steal what he picks. And it doesn't say any land. In fact, there are a few bits of land, especially in London, where you can't pick, like the Royal Parks. But um, I think we're I think we're okay in Hackney Marshes. Actually, even if you're trespassing, and you shouldn't be trespassing, uh, if, if you say you found, went to a farmer's field and you saw some mushrooms there, and you picked them, and the farmer come along and say, "Hey, what do you think you're doing picking my mushrooms?" And uh, he can't. He can tell you to leave. But he can't take the mushrooms off off of you because you've picked them and they're, your, they're yours now. I, I never met this guy, but a friend of mine knew him. He's lived in the village down the road. Old Dick, I think his name was. But uh, he, he, this is a Dorset farmhand. Must be, he, I think he'd be 120 by now if he was still alive. But he was in a farmer's field and, uh, and the farmer came up to him and said, hey, hey, Dick, what do you think you'll be doing? He said, I, so you're picking my mushrooms. He said, see, they not be your mushrooms, they be God's. <laughs> and that was, a, I mean, that was a folk memory of how the natural world was ordered. You know, it was, there was stuff that was, that was farmed and everything else was, uh, was gods and dicks, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> so where to next? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, a, for, a foray is not a walk, you see. A, a foray may involve a walk, but it's not necessarily a walk. And people get confused. Um, well, I've just seen something. Uh, people get people get confused. And I take I take about fifty forays a year. A year. I've done I've done about eight hundred over the years. And, uh, and we, people we start and uh, and I say, okay, well let's uh, let's start looking. And um, people just disappear off into the distance, and I have to say, come back, come back. Where the, where are you going? I said, we're, we're we're already here. Uh, I'll say this to you, Richard, as well. We are already here. But just over there, there's a, uh, I think that's a broom tree, a broom shrub. It's, it's another 10 yards on. <laughs> yeah, you're okay. You're not tiring yourself out, are you? <laughs> I think I'll just about make it. So, have you always foraged for food? Um, yeah, I mean it's not it's not a full time occupation. Never has been. Uh, never will be. I think it's something that everybody can do. You know, if they're physically able, they can do this. Um, and uh, it's nice to just do it every now and then. But, uh, it, it's, it's where you know, sorry, hackneyed. Oh, how, how appropriate hackneyed uh, hackneyed phrase. But it, it does get you back. 
a little bit closer to the, your, our origins. We are natural foragers, um, and uh, you know a walk is a complete waste of time if you don't do a foray. Um, you slow yourself down. You're looking about, and you start to see things. You start to see, see the natural world. If you just go for a walk, people just look at the view and think how lovely it is and it, I'm sure it is a lovely view but I, I, I try to look a little bit more closely at the natural world and you see loads of things oh so much to see so much to see uh, terrific so should we pursue a little further uh, yeah let's go I don't know where to go just just wander at random that's that's sort of foraging I used to uh, take this uh, these people out from they sort of bushcraft people one of these guys he was um, he was a, a tracker and uh, we were on a mushroom foray once and he told me the end of the day I was the hardest person he ever met for tracking because there was no sense in the, where I was going. <laughs> Peering down by the banks now, what are you looking for by a riverbank? Well, there's lots... Oh, that's interesting. There's lots of... Oh, something else interesting. <laughs> oh, well, there's lots of interesting things down here. <laughs> Uh, but I, 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 it's quite a steep bank. You haven't bring, did you bring any rope? No, you, I haven't got a rope or a ladder, I'm afraid. No, or, or a machete. You forgot the machete too, didn't you? Um, OK, well, we just have to do it very carefully. I, I so want to get down, and, and uh, you can actually see this plant from here. Uh, can you see the one right by on, on the water's edge? That, it's worth knowing, uh, because not everything in the garden or indeed in the wild is rosy and uh, that's hemlock water dropwort uh, uh, that's very nasty plant indeed it looks i'm sure you can see it looks very much like flat leaf parsley i was going to say that looks a bit like parsley it does and it's in the carrot family along with parsley and carrots and stuff the whole plant is deadly poisonous the roots particularly so uh, they look very tasty and i've dug them up and, and they do look like a very, very very attractive bunches of carrots except they're white not uh, orange then people have eaten them by mistake and basically got three very unpleasant hours to look forward to and that's it uh, so it's a nasty nasty plant but beautiful so how different would this be if we were uh, doing this foray in the country rather than in the city well it's surprisingly similar um you know the, the parks can be wonderful places uh for, to, to find wild food especially mushrooms you get the right park uh, but, uh, but most parks will have a lot of uh, non-native species. Uh, you know, parks are often partly garden, and they can be invasive. But this is surprisingly close to a natural environment. We're getting nearly all native plants here, so uh, really almost indistinguishable from uh, from the countryside. So uh, well done, well done, Hackney Marshes. So, I mean, you mentioned the idea that you need to show self-restraint. Uh, there's a kind of ethical dimension to it as well. What, what gives you the right to grab part of nature's bounty, part of our common wealth, and declare that it's yours, it's for your, your frying pan? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I don't like people who uh, answer questions by asking, well, what gives you the right to eat anything? Because uh, we, uh, every time you eat something, you've taken something from somewhere else. I do, I do think we do have a right. Do we have a right to food? Yes, I would say. I mean, this, this whole idea of the, uh, of the world being ours, I guess it's just a little bit arrogant, but, uh, you know, we are a species like any other. Uh, we are rather boorish in our nature. Um, we need to uh, moderate our, our worst, worst instincts, I suppose. But uh, yeah, we do have the same rights as any other species, but we have to remember that they have them too. Has foraging changed since you've been doing it over the last 10, 15 years? 
purpose? Yes, I suppose, you know, since when I was serious, studied really seriously, uh, taking an interest in fungi in the late 70s, uh, everybody thought I was completely insane. Uh, why are you pick, why are you picking these things? Why why are you eating? Th- you know, you're going to die, John. You're going to die. Uh, um, but now it's 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 normal. I say normal, but it's something that uh, a lot of people do. So for today, we've got ourselves a, 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 sm- a small salad with some elderflower cordial to finish. Yes, um, we could have the, we have a chickweed chickweed pakora. We could put the fat hen in the chickweed pakora. So chickweed and fat hen pakora. That's going to be really good for us. Yeah, I think I think we've done well. Richard, you were very polite about the treasures inverted commas again uh, that you found. <laughs> um, but would you would you do it again? Well, I don't think I'll be organising expeditions to go out and harvest the elderflower or the chickweed or the fat hen even come to that. And you have to be a little bit careful. I mean, I wouldn't be confident identifying mushrooms without an expert to hand. And you can pick up things which will really do you damage. But I mean, as a question of awareness, it's kind of an interesting thing. It's also a question of additions as well. We we tried the leaves of a lime tree. I didn't know you could eat the leaves of a lime tree at all. It turns out they're very green in spring. They taste kind of fresh. Uh, and we also found uh, the flowers of, uh, on a broom tree, which are kind of very pea-ish. And so it's not a question of going out that I'm going to go out and get a kilo of lime leaves and eat those. But you can imagine <laughs> walking past a lime tree and instead of just thinking, oh, that looks nice, you might gather a few and add them to your salad or something. Well, John writes, The Forager's Calendar is published by Profile Books and Andrea Wolfe's The Adventures of Alexander von Humboldt with illustrations by Lillian Melcher is with John Murray. Both are out now. And Andrea will be at the Hay Festival on Saturday, June 1st, where, incidentally, there will also be loads of foraging workshops going on, especially for kids. Next week, we look quite literally under the carpets with Sarah Krasnerstein, who talks about her experiences following a trauma cleaner in Australia. And we time travel with novelist Sandra Newman and her new book, The Heavens. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. Me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.